So, uh, welcome, Steve Nunez. Or, uh, that's that's your name, not Socio Steve, because that's that's just <laughs> your Twitter handle. Uh, welcome, that's Steve right. Nunez, to the uh, Think Critical podcast. Today's episode is going to be about re- re-weaving the social safety net. Also, we're going to talk about heavy metal, because why not? Um, because yes. I never got to talk about this with anybody else. So, you know what? Put it on record. Can, um, we, can, we, can we throw some Dungeons & Dragons in there, too? Of course, of course. Of course. Okay. I, I, okay, go how, much, how much 5th edition have you played? Oh, a lot. I actually yeah. was one of the beta testers on it uh, when it first came out. That's incredible. A long time ago. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I've been playing forever. I got the uh, the old 2nd edition red box when I was about 8, I think. I um, saw my dad's red box. Oh, beautiful. See, see, I always, I, I, I still, every once in a while, I think I'm like, oh, Bargle, he killed my, my cleric friend and I need to get revenge on him. That, that really got me into the, into the, the hobby. So I mean, my friends had a, we've had a, a four year long campaign. We're in like oh. arc two of the campaign. Um, actually, you know what? Listen, this is going to sound incredibly nerdy, but I'm going to let my podcast audience know what happened in the campaign. So the first uh, campaign they started like level five. They got to level twenty because I jumped on like really fast. Oh, they wow. killed this like demon that had come to like eat all of Earth. But in the process, they actually released Tiamat um, via a series of unforced errors. Oh, um, oh dear. Uh, yeah, because they, they basically they thought themselves they're like they're like in hell. They're looking for Asmodeus because they need something from him, and so they had decided to themselves to unlock Tiamat and use her as like a bus and they just assumed they could just put her back but it was a mistake yeah, I <laughs> generally don't use an evil god as a bus is, is a is a, is <laughs> yeah. a very deep life lesson yeah so so, uh, yeah. so, and, uh, so Tiamat ended up dethroning Asmodeus and is now um, uh, running rampant throughout the universe trying to destroy everything in all of known existence and it's their job to stop them unfortunately COVID has cut the campaign somewhat short but we uh, should be starting again um so yeah, that's our campaign. <laughs> now, now your podcast audience, the podcast audience knows the campaign. But during anyway, the yeah, during I would say during the uh, during the the pandemic, I ran um, just a uh, you know for the folks at JFI, a lot of them had never played D and D before, so I ran uh, just the Lost Minds of, of Fandelver, um, which they they seem to like. So yeah, uh, so that it's was a, fun. It's, it's a great, it's a good adventure. Yeah, um, it's got a, it's got anyway. a decent amount of uh, you know sandbox yeah. and stuff. So. And getting back to to, to the <laughs> back topic to policy, and, yeah, and, and back to my uh, back to my normal voice. So, Steve, how will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, so, my name is Steve Nunez. Uh, I am a sociologist, and uh, I am currently the uh, lead researcher on guaranteed income at the Jane Family Institute. So that's uh, a fairly small and new. Um, th- so applied policy, uh, applied research organization. Um, I think we started in 2016 or so, and we have about, I think, 15 or 16 full-time employees. Uh, so we do work in uh, guaranteed income, which is um, <clears throat> what we mean by that is generally unconditional cash transfers. Um, so things like child allowances, Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, and of course, UBI and, and you know, Yang's, Yang style freedom dividend, that kind of stuff. Uh, we also do uh, higher education finance and work on digital ethics, meaning things like algorithmic fairness and, and, and that sort of stuff. So um, I come to JFI uh, by way of, I guess, uh, the program evaluation world. 
before that, I worked at MDRC as a research associate in uh, housing and, and workforce. Um, so I guess I'm kind of new to the think tank space. I've been working at, MD, at uh, JFI for about a little bit more than two years now. Um, and yeah, doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, we do field work. Uh, we're the, um, the PIs on the Compton Pledge, uh, which is uh, a recent um, guaranteed income study launched in Compton, California, um, and uh, connected with Mayors for Guaranteed Income here in the United States. Uh, we're also studying the partial basic income that the city of Marica, uh, Brazil, in the state of Rio has uh, implemented. Uh, that's actually a policy. Um, and I think recently we've been expanding out into sort of the, the more think tanky stuff, white papers and briefs and so forth. Um, so I've been working on public opinion research. Um, we have a white paper series, which we're going to talk about, I guess, um, about uh, thinking through some of the details of how you would actually implement this kind of program and put it put it into the safety net. Um, and uh, recently, uh, even more recently, I guess, I, I've been sort of dipping my toes into the world of, of modeling and simulation. So um, micro simulation work, uh, we're hiring somebody, I think, to, to help me out with that. And um, we recently brought on Claudia Sam as a um, as a senior research fellow, uh, and Claudia is going to uh, be helping me understand the world of dynamic stochastic general equilibrium modeling um, and what that can tell us about guaranteed income. Claudia is ridiculously uh, ridiculously smart. One of my favorite. A macroeconomist from the left, and I, I like all sorts of macro, but in terms of like you know sources that are, I guess you consider her left left wing at least. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, she is very like her uh, her Sam rule idea, which is still used today, is probably you know a way better recession indicator than um than what's normally used as growth. Um, yeah, um, it's been really exciting to to get to to work with her um, and to to learn from her. Uh, I have so a tweet I've, of hers on my wall right now. Like oh, I, have, yes. I have a wall tweet. The, fam the famous tweet wall. Yeah, so, so the, we, we got two tweets on it right now. Um, they got a Jason Furman just yelling no at Stephanie <laughs> Kelton. And we got a Claudia's tweet, um, which I can all read it out right now. Is Friedman in his scholarship was a huge contributor to economics. Sadly, his students were not as good and didn't underst even understand his work. And his policy work was bad. <laughs> so I need to, this is a goal of mine that I need to find a way to get onto your Twitter wall. So that's. Uh, so the way you get on the Twitter wall is usually by yelling at MMTers, yelling at <laughs> Austrians, or like making a good take about Milton Friedman. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of the those three are, those ways. Those are the three main the three, things. Okay. The three way, ways to get on the walls. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, I have to say, like, I, so I mean, I'm a sociologist. I I think I could um, I can pretend to be a, a labor economist, maybe, or or some microeconomist, so so forth. I don't. I, I'm very bad at pretending to be a macroeconomist, and and I've almost there. There's something about like any conversation around mon modern monetary theory that immediately just I my brain just dry, floats away, and I don't. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but, they're always so brutal conversations where it's like, you know, you're sitting there, you're trying to argue with like the someone prominent MMT person and it's only like 50 accounts with an owl and their username come in. They're like, sir, will you please take this copy of the deficit myth? And they just link me the Amazon link to the deficit myth. I'm like, but I don't, I don't want to buy this book and read it to finish the conversation. Why are you doing this? I, I'll, I'll say something wrong. I'll be like, hmm, this sounds a lot like Keynesian. And they're like, Rah! and I, I just don't even want to get involved in it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the take is now that it's all fiscal theory of the price level plus neo fisherianism uh, hmm. which is like uh, which is you know those are two schools I'm not really a big fan of on their own but like when you fr- when you package them in the MMT package I start to like them even less um, but then like you'll say that and then the MMT people will be like no MMT is like Bitcoin but leftist and like what does that mean I, I it, I'm not saying I mean there there's some very there are some very intelligent and articulate yeah, people yeah. who are who are supporters of it and and it's not my field so I'm not going to pass judgment on it uh, I think but the, yeah I mean there's there's some volunteers who I there's commentary I like I enjoy Nathan Tankers uh, writing about like um, yeah. the Fed creating its own bonds which just sounds kind of cool I don't know why we don't do that already but then sometimes it's just like I don't want to I don't want to do this today on Twitter.com <laughs> and sign up for this yeah Nathan's a cool guy and um, you know um, so JFI is in you know. Prior to the pandemic, um, we have uh, offices in, in Soho, which we're, we're hoping in, in New York City, which we're hoping to get back to. And we always had, um, you know, really good turnout for our research sessions. And Nathan, um, among others, uh, often showed up for them. So um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to that um, as as this. Sort Maybe of I'll show passes. up one day. Yeah, I, I don't see why not. Um, you could you could come hang out, uh, listen to folks. We have, we pull in all sorts of folks. Um, you know, Marshall Steinbaum does come and, and talk too. He's a he's I'm a blocked fellow. on Twitter by him, which would be very awkward. <laughs> oh, very awkward. Okay, well you could tell him that. <laughs> he he blocks a lot of people, so there's probably like a couple of people who's like, I like that guy, but I'm blocked. <laughs> I I understand. I Twitter is uh, you know it's a bit of a hell site. And, no, I don't um, think he personally blocked me. I think he just used a chain block, and I got prob- caught up. That's probably true. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Like those. I mean, I, I usually end up getting blocked by like I, I got blocked by like Nick Fuentes and like <laughs> I'm usually not, I'm usually not belligerent unless they're like a small account, which is like really annoying. And like that case, I'll unleash my full force with like whatever <laughs> tiny amount of followers I have, which is still larger. Uh, anyway, that's the, uh, enough of uh, enough of that. Let's um, let's reweave the safety net. Yeah, yeah. So my first question for you: What is reweaving the safety net? So reweaving the safety net is um, the second white paper in a series that we we created uh, called "From Idea to Reality: Getting to Guaranteed Income." And I think um, I came up with this idea to, to to make this sort of white paper series because you know I felt like it's time to start thinking about unconditional cash transfer policy as, as something serious and something that we need to actually think about implementing. How do you, how do you actually implement it? What kind of infrastructure needs to be put into place? Where does it fit into the safety net? You know, what does it displace? How do you fund it? Um, And just in general, how do you get there in terms of moving public opinion and so forth? And I, I feel like the reason I went that route is there's a lot of research around 
guaranteed income UBI over the last few years, a lot of advocacy. There's, you know, philosophical treatises on, on why it's a good thing. You know, you get the kind of the Georgist approach and all that. And I, I love, I'm, I love that. Um, and then there's a lot of focus on these small pilots, you know, 500 people, thousand people. And they're often um, asking questions that, um, you know, some of them are very valuable questions. Some of them though, we already have answers to, you know, we don't really need to, to dig further into the short-term, you know, labor supply elasticities. I, I think that's pretty well established. I think a lot of the consumption questions are, are pretty well answered. We know people aren't, you know, using drugs with the money or that's not a huge problem. Um, but, you know, surprisingly little uh, thought, I think, explicit thought had gone into, okay, well, if you really wanted to do this at the federal level, like, how would you actually get money to people? Um, and, uh, you know, how would you fund it? What programs would you get rid of? What does it, what is it good for? And what is it not good for? Um, so I felt like, uh, you know, JFI, we're an applied research organization. Um, we take this seriously as a, as a policy proposal. And I thought it was about time to start fleshing things out. So our first, our first one, our first white paper building a helicopter, which you made the very nice, um, banner for me throwing the, the uh, on Twitter, uh, throwing the money out. Um, you know, that was about the cash infrastructure. Um, and it got into things like public banking and, you know, how to get direct deposit systems set up and all that. Um, this one reweaving the safety net is, all right, you say, you say you like uh, unconditional cash transfers. Well, how big should they be, and how frequently should be they should they be dispersed? You know, should it be a biweekly thing or whatever. Um, and then also, like, what is it for? You know, I mean, there are people in the world of UBI who basically just want UBI, and their answer to most questions is make a bigger UBI. Um, so. <laughs> So uh, one of my favorite people uh, on Twitter and uh, people that I, I chat with outside of Twitter too for work, uh, Max Guinness is, is sort of in the, you know, the his maximum Guinness, right? It's a maximum UBI, just make a bigger UBI. Um, and I thought about this. Uh, there's also folks like, like the Charles Murray types who really just want a tiny UBI and no other safety net at all. Um, I don't think... Either of those are the most common, um, you know, among advocates. But when you ask them, you know, okay, what is this going to look like? They say, oh, get rid of food stamps. And what else? Uh, food stamps, maybe WIC, right? So I thought we wanted to think about that. And I, I think um, maybe the most useful thing I produced in that large document was just this idea that um, you should think about safety net programs uh, as serving different roles and, you know, UBI, unconditional cash transfers in general, serve a sort of income support role. Um, and that's really a great sort of um, uh, thing for basically everybody to receive. Um, it, it boosts your income, it, it helps you out, it can have great poverty effects and so forth. It's not a great substitute for social insurance uh, provision. And that would mean things like, um, you know, um, <clears throat> SSDI or SSI um, or, um, or unemployment insurance, right? Um, 
So then there's a little discussion about, you know, incomplete markets and, and insurance and why the government might, might want to do direct provision of insurance. Um, and I note that, you know, if there is direct insurance provision, then giving people money and just saying, go ahead and buy the insurance is, is perfectly fine. Uh, when it comes to UI or to um, to SSDI or something like that, it, it, there's a stronger case for the government to get involved. So I think just making that sort of distinction and saying, hey, you know, you can have, uh, you know, a UBI and unemployment insurance uh, simultaneously. And in fact, they they sort of serve different functions in the, in the safety net and, and they probably complement each other very nicely. Uh, I also managed to avoid getting into the horrible um, morass of UBI versus a jobs guarantee by pointing out that a jobs guarantee really is closer to a social insurance uh, sort of provision, not uh, not UBI. And therefore, they're not actually uh, direct uh, substitutes, and I don't have to uh, come down on one side or the other. So very tactical yeah. there. <laughs> you, you answered my uh, what was going to be my next question, which is like, well, you know, what do you think of a UBI should be standalone, not standalone? Um, so a further question though. So um, contrary to the the narrative you see a lot on the on the Twitter, I do think that UI probably has a significant um, disemployment effect. Especially now, for certain industries, like um, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence now, copious amount of anecdotal evidence about shortages of wet restaurant workers. Oh, disincentive uh, effect. Yeah, said, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I just don't think that. No, no, uh, no. I don't think that we should get rid of uh, UI, but I do think it probably is helping to keep certain people in looking for better jobs rather than taking the first available job, which would probably be a restaurant job in, under normal circumstances. Now, that's that, a, you know, yeah. In the, I mean, in the judgment they, of whether that's a good or bad, sure. you know, it's up to you. So, I mean, if you're Raj Chetty or others, they've, they've produced papers around that suggesting that um, giving people longer time to search can be you know, beneficial because it creates, you know, better matches um, and therefore, you know, more productive and more stable work relationships going forward. Um, but I think you should have Matt Darling on to, to, to argue the, the pro um, or, or, or Aaron, or Aaron Dubé or, or Aaron Dubé, if you can get him to come on. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm definitely going to get Matt on. Uh, if I get Aaron Dubé on, I'll be taken to another level. If me and Jason start a podcast and we can get Aaron Dubé on, <laughs> uh, the Jason and I podcast is going to be weird. That's going to be a thing, but it's going to be weird as hell. Cool. I'm, I'll go, I'll go on podcasts. I'll go on more podcasts. I'll go on. I was try. I wanted to get on neoliberal Twitch. Also, I think that would have been fun. Yeah. I want to. I want to try and uh, pill Jacob, uh, pill Jason on on metal because he's you know he, he doesn't like that genre. If he has to accept metal is for everyone. Metal. If you are not into metal, you are not my friend. As 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 Manowar eloquently stated. <laughs> Manowar has such a way such a way of words. Um, yes. We won't play here at Hellfest because the stage is too small. And you can't let us use the, so, the ox. My brother, um, my brother is was friends with a guy who who was a roadie for for Man of War, and you know my brother once inquired just out, all right. He said he said like it must be a lot of fun working with those guys, right? Because they're hilarious, right? Like yeah, you know, he's and he's and the guy like took a big drag of cigarette. He's like they are not hilarious. They take this very seriously. He said one time I 
was sitting there, you know, and they, they came out of like chain mail and they're doing all the thing with the axes and all that. And, you know, I made some kind of like comment afterwards or all sitting around drinking. He's like, man, that, that, that stuff's really funny, man. Like, I, I love you. I love you guys. It's such it's so funny. And he's just like, what the hell are you talking about? Funny. That's, this is real. That's metal. Right. So, so he, <laughs> so yeah, they, they are, um, they're they're true believers in all of that stuff, right? I'm sure they actually like forge their own chain mail and and, and everything. That's it's yeah. very exciting. Uh, I I saw Sabaton right before COVID hit. Oh, Sabaton wow. take themselves somewhat. They don't take themselves at all seriously, even though they have the whole like dress up thing. Mm-hmm. Um, only because like I asked me signing to Sweden, where like the entire country of Sweden is just devoted to creating memes out of like music out of their like monarchy it's just, it's a great country it's a great country when i want to go there small, it's a small great guy yeah i haven't my um uh, so johannes haushofer who's one of the pis on the the compton pledge uh recently moved uh, to university of stockholm um and he is uh He's he's just absolutely in love with that city, um, and is is constantly. So I, I'm a I'm a dual citizen of the United States and Italy. So he's he's trying to convince me to to move to Stockholm, uh, take advantage of the Schengen Agreement. Oh yeah, because you can get Italian citizenship and then live in. Yeah, you Sweden, can live right? all, all all across Europe, right? So um, so I might do that one day. I think that'd be cool. We could set up a JFI Europe. One of my plans is for uh, like a year, the summer before college, is I want to go a trip through Central Europe by train to see all the old stuff. I like old buildings like a lot. Uh, so my goal is to see like Rome, Ravenna, Z- Zurich, um, Prague, Vienna, oh, yeah. uh, Potsdam to see the, uh, to see Saint Susi, the Cologne Cathedral, and then probably I want to end up in Gothenburg. Wow. And I want to go, and I want to go to an actual underground Gothenburg like Mellow Death uh, <laughs> club. And just go like, yo, this is this is like a, a dark and tranquility ripoff. I don't care. They need to actually do it like in in a catacombs, right? Just like it was just skeletons. Yeah, like where they filmed the where they filmed the at the gates music video. Yeah, <laughs> uh, nice. that was a really old one. Oh wow, yeah, I forgot about at the gates. I haven't heard them in a really they, long yeah, time. Yeah, because they, they 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 like took a break for a while, but they came yeah. back and they made really good. Like like of of the original three uh, Melodef bands from Sweden, mm. In Flames is a mess. Dark Tranquility, they're good, but they're making like weird like electro pop plus metal. <laughs> they're good. Um, and then actually, the new album is not like that. The new the new album is really good, actually. Um, and then at the gates, they release like every once in a while, but they consistently they, they just haven't changed at all. But they're still you know still that's not that's that's a good thing. That was some um, good stuff. Yeah, uh, Slaughter of the Soul is probably the best heavy metal I and mean, the death metal album of all time. Hmm. Maybe you can argue that. I don't know. That's interesting. That, that are individual thought patterns to me. Hmm. No, I'm not sure. I it's I'm a little rusty in my in my um my metal Rolodex at this point, at this point. Um remember I'm an, I'm a boomer so that's it's uh, I I'm still I'm still young so I get to listen to all the old stuff and be like wow this is so cool what a love the 90s. <laughs> wow, Pantera and Fear Factory. Whoa, ancient stuff. Yeah. I don't I don't like Fear Factory. I do like Pantera. Oh, no, you're not a you don't like um 
you know, you're not a big fan of like the uh, industrial metal stuff. I don't like industrial. A good no. friend of mine likes nine inch nails, uh, but mm-hmm. that's uh, that's like the only heavy stuff he likes. So I have to get in the nine inch nails now. So, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, if you so. I would say Fear Factory has that one album, Demanufacture, which is amazing. It's one of my most favorite pieces. And um, I, as a kid, I went to the Mortal Kombat movie, which is... You do embarrassing things when you're a teenager sometimes. <laughs> They're but, making a new one, by the way. Oh, no, please. But but, the, but that but that movie, there's a in the movie when they fight Scorpion, they're actually playing... Uh, zero signal from uh, Fear Factory in the background, and my uh, my friend and I were just like, "Yes, that's awesome! It's so cool!" And I think I like ran home from the theater and told my mom this, and she's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And so it was great. Right. You know what? Are, what are what new are you listening to in that genre, though? New? I mean, I um, I I have just. I mean, I literally did not ever listen to Gojira, and and now I had a friend like interest. I've yeah, been trying. So good. It's just so good. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's gro- yeah. It's starting to grow on me. They're they're, they're yeah. ungodly heavy and live. They're even more energetic. Like mm. I, I saw them. I saw them at SPAC of all places, mm. which is like an open. It's an open air theater in Saratoga <laughs> Springs. Uh, I saw them at like Slipknot and a couple. Of, but I, I was there for Gojira. Um, Gojira. Um, and uh, they had they had there was an inflatable whale which they tossed in the crowd and we like bumped it around. It was awesome. Oh, yeah. oh another one. If you like um, just like sludge metal, although you might not. Um, I, so, again, the same friend was just um, was it called? Uh, it's called Goat Shaman. I don't know if you know that band. Uh, I, I've heard <laughs> them once or twice. I mean, my, I thought, my, my, uh, yeah. my, greatest, my greatest exposure was I started with sludge just like early Mastodon albums. Mm-hmm. Um, but like my, my real exposure to Sludge was like Electric Wizard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Electric, it's, it's, Electric it's, Wizard is an experience. They're good, and it's like they're just it's you know it's so heavy. Let, let's just be Black Sabbath, and and because Black Sabbath Amp is good, and we need more Black Sabbath. Yes, so that's good. Um, I, I want to listen to the entirety of. Uh, I know this is not Electric <laughs> Wizard, but listen to the entire uh, entirety of Dope Smoker once. Mm. Um, just to try it, and it was like after like I was like twenty minutes in, I'm like, this is not going anywhere. This is just, <laughs> just kind of this is kind of things happening. The guy's talking it, now. What is he talking about? It's sludge metal. It doesn't go anywhere. And I think maybe the the name of the album should have given you a hint about yeah. <laughs> their about, state of mind about the state of mind and the complexity of the of the yeah. piece. Yeah, it's not Bach, yeah. right? So yeah, so. Uh, I want to say I was going to say speaking of um, speaking of new music, what do you think of uh, of, of like Yang's idea for city, uh, city level uh, you know UBI? Do you think city level UBIs are are, are viable? Or, you know what's the correct implementation level? So that I mean that's interesting. So we actually recently released a paper on this um, in the world of dynamic stochastic, in this case, spatial equilibrium modeling. This is a good segue. Good segue. Um, so uh, that's by um, uh, uh, Jack Favalukas uh, and Khalil M. M. Shrikani, who are uh, economists uh, at the University of British Columbia, and uh, so the paper actually looks at. Uh, or attempts to model, um, you know, what what a guaranteed income would look like um, in a city where the city is calibrated 
uh, to sort of match some baseline characteristics about income and demographic distribution and so forth for New York City. Um, and since this is a spatial equilibrium model, uh, it has an interesting kind of a core and periphery where people can actually uh, commute uh, from work into the core from the periphery. They can move. There's commuting costs. It's, it's you know, it's among the more complex of these sort of um, uh, you know general equilibrium modeling structures. Is it, is it just a copy of City Skylines? <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Um, that would no, be a no, fun it, game. That would be a really fun game. No, um, no, this is the not fun. You know, run an enormous um, optimization problem over the course of seventy-two hours, and hopefully it converges. And oops, you put one wrong thing, and you wasted th- three days. Yeah. Um, a, a tip for running all models: remove Japan and Argentina. That's just you just got to make sure there's nothing. <laughs> Because those those will mess up your model. Those countries are not are, are not yes. normal. Remove Argentina. Argentina has a, a new debt crisis. Every my my homeland. Um, a, a good friend of mine is um is uh, is Argentinian, and mm-hmm. like every day she like you know she'll post like a meme to our group chat she's at we're in, where she's like like something new the government has done. Like the other day they're like they tried to like write letters to companies to tell them to make more things, and like the companies weren't going to do that, so like the government like ended up threatening them. Oh, oh Peronism. That's good stuff. Um, so so yeah, the um, so this this the the paper's really cool because <laughs> the paper's really cool because it, it um you know it looks at I think it was a, a household level five thousand dollar per uh, household guaranteed income. And uh, they pay for it uh, through a variety of things. They try through an income tax try through um, something like a wealth tax um, and something like a business tax. You know, these are abstract models. So like you couldn't, for example, do a VAT because there's no intermediate goods. Um, that, but there is, you know, you could do a, a more g- generic sort of consumption tax. And I think, um, y- you know, you get generally interesting effects there. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a GDP hit, uh, as there often is in these things. Uh, sort of modest reduction in, in hours worked. Um, I think very importantly, you find uh, in this type of model uh, that once you also include financing options, that um, you know UBI doesn't create some kind of weird inflationary state where housing becomes unaffordable. I think there's a lot of you know like oh, landlords are going to increase by you know by the exact amount. That doesn't happen, obviously. I've always but- hated that argument, you know, that counter argument because like you know it's kind of weird. I'm a, I'm like a monetarist, right? So I think yeah. inflation is a is a monetary phenomenon. Obviously, certain goods can increase in price over the other. But like whenever somebody was like you know back in the, the Yang campaigning days, somebody's like, "Well, this cause inflation." I'm like, "No, good sir, the money supply is increasing." Money supply is increasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, because we're using uh, via modern monetary theory, we're taking the money out of the economy via taxes. So, the, <laughs> um, no, so the, um, it, you know, it is absolutely the case that you might expect, at least in a partial equilibrium analysis, because there's a lot of pent up demand and there's a very, um, and we have NIMBYs to deal with. And so therefore the supply, elast- the supply is not particularly elastic. They're like the final but, boss. Yeah. Yeah. The new final boss engage. Yeah. Uh, so then, um, you know, that that's going to mean that probably housing, you know, at least in theory could go up by a bit. Um, but again, you have to think about the finance side as well. Um, so that's one thing, but I think one thing that you that we saw in that model, and I mean, is um, you know, 
interest rates do not um, respond to the to uh, changes in savings behavior that are induced by changes in taxes and by the benefit itself, right? Um, because it's this isn't a full general equilibrium model where where they where that market is actually included and clears. So it actually leads to to in the model at least, and and you know it's a model. Um, like a, a sort of a significant drop in, in household wealth, I think, um, at the the city city level in New York because of because it's being implemented at the municipal level. And I think the the authors say um, very specifically, you know, if it were at, done at the the national level, and interest rates could actually sort of respond by by going up a bit, and you know, as as sort of saving rates down, it would it would, it would be a, the effect would be attenuated. So that's well, one yeah, thing because- to think. You know, yeah. like uh, uh, interest rates. They don't. You know, each city doesn't have its own interest rate because yeah. the national bank set one rate, which is why you know it's it's a, it's a I guess it's a friction that you know there's yeah. you know there's an implicit not even really, like really an implicit contract. It's why like uh, rest- McDonald's restaurants in the city or in the countryside have different profit margins. Yeah, and I think. Um- uh, on top of that, when you're when you have a city, you have some question of of you know residential mobility. Um, are very wealthy people going to flee to avoid paying the taxes, um, or um, are you know working class people going to try to swarm into the city in order to get the access to the benefit? You know, I, I'm not sure how much I actually worry about that. Every time. They raise taxes in the United in uh, New York New York State on you know millionaires taxes or wherever they say oh, the, the the millionaires are all going to flee and they generally don't because um, it's a pain in the butt <laughs> to move. It's, and it's you can, the Big Apple. Come on, it's the Big it's Apple. It's the Big baby. Apple. Who's leave? A, yeah, and I mean you know people don't generally extract themselves from their social networks. Sorry, sociologists. Um, you know, over the course of you know a little bit extra tax money. I think the other thing though is are people going to move in? And certainly that's something that. Um, you know, others have considered in the city of Marica in Brazil, they actually say you're free to move in, but you have to live here for three years. And once you have established the residency for three years, then you have access to this benefit. So I've also talked to advocates in Chicago who said, wait, you mean we could get people to move back into Chicago with something like this? That sounds great. Am I um, the only one in the world who wants to go to Chicago now? Is that like I, I actually am a big fan of Chicago. I think yeah. it's a it's a great city. Well, then again, um, I think like a new Chicago aspiration versus like I want to move to the South Side. It's very different things. I mean, I don't, then I, again, I would be going to the South Side. So you know, who knows? I, it's a nice neighborhood, um, yeah. but I I, I I think it doesn't deserve the reputation it has. Yeah, um, I know Chicago, Detroit and Cleveland. Detroit and Cleveland deserve it. Cleveland. Uh, I, I, I've never been to Detroit or, or Cleveland actually. So but Cleveland is just it's like one of those cities where it's like. It's dangerous and it's not interesting. So it's like, you know, you got the worst of both worlds. It's like, why am I here? I can get shot, but also there's nothing here for me to do. So well, I why am I here I in mean, first place? I, I mean, yeah, the cities are about sort of stimulation, right? You're meeting people, going to museums, going that kind of stuff. So it's certainly something to invest in. Oh, um, what I do want to say is I think the main issues, I think, when it comes down to, to the city, come down to you know, logistics and, and, and finance. Um, on the finance end, I think, New, I, I'm not sure if this is correct, but New York is the only city I can think of that actually has its own income tax. Um, so, so you know, the idea of, uh, we're gonna, we'll pay for it with income tax in San, San Francisco, like, no, you won't. Um, then, um, 
but even in New York, it's not like the city can just change its income tax or change the sales tax on its own. You know, home rule is an amazingly complex topic, and I'm not a lawyer, but um, if Andrew Yang does become mayor, and, and you know, that seems more likely than not at this stage, but but who knows what could happen over the next few months, um, he is going to have to work with the state. Um, and uh, in order to to get to raise uh, to, to raise taxes, because um, you can't just say you know we're going to raise income tax. You have to get the often in many instances you need legislative uh, action on the part of, of of the state. I think another issue is is um, when you're doing state uh, city benefits and even state benefits is how it interacts with the, the safety net. Um, you know, tax tax credits generally do not count against um, benefits like like SNAP or, or TANF or whatever, and um, a lot of types of income um, do not count against um, your your federal um, income tax. Um, so there and therefore um, don't count against EITC. Or against Medicaid, which uses you know federally adjusted taxable income uh, for that benefits calculation, but like most of the state administered benefits do. So if you're gonna if he's gonna structure something like a guaranteed income like this, he's gonna have to get you know administrative waivers from the state um, to the extent that the state can do it. Um, so it's easy to do that for TANF, um, but as I've found. Uh, as I've worked uh, on with the team on the Compton Pledge, um, and as I've talked to folks around the, the the country, that you know whether you're paying for it through public funds or private funds, uh, a pilot or a policy, um, unless you have you know can take advantage of some very specific specific statutory back back doors, that money is going to count against um, you know things like SNAP. Um, and it very well may count against things like, uh, you know, housing choice vouchers and and and, uh, and public housing. Um, and you know, if if this ends up just replacing <laughs> SNAP one, you know, dollar for dollar or whatever, it's obviously not particularly valuable. So um, so he's going to have his work cut out for him uh, working on that. Um, you know, both trying to raise money for it and also to deal with that. I also think. Um, since we're on that, it's how we're going to get the money to people is is a big is a big deal. Um, you know, we're talking about. I think the last I saw was <clears throat> you wanted to focus on something like the five hundred thousand uh, poorest households or poorest individuals in the, in the city. So imagine sending out monthly five hundred thousand monthly checks. Um, you know, what does New York City have? Uh, to do something like that, well, they there are plans to you know push like a public Venmo kind of uh, system at the state level, um, and also that uh, that that localized currency thing too. I heard uh, they're building infrastructure for that, so I think they're going to integrate the two. It's possible, yeah. The localized currency. That's uh, so. In, in Marika, they use the the Mumbuka, which is a digital currency, um, and it can certainly. It, it can be, you know, it was a lot of work to set that up, but it certainly benefited them. So, uh, you know, they have about 150, 160,000 people in their city, about 50,000 get the, get the actual benefit. 
And, you know, they're just, they press a button and money goes out on a monthly basis and they can use it anywhere in the city. I think it's pretty, it's something like 98% of all merchants in the city actually accept it. So it has a very high usage rate. And when the pandemic came, they just said, wow, this is rough, but, you know, let's just send out more money. And they just, they just increased the monthly amount as a sort of a pandemic uh, surplus. Um, Was there inflation? Uh, I mean, good question. We've been dying to get out into the field, um, but have not been able to um, <clears throat> uh, because of the pandemic. But we do have a plan uh, to actually uh, to get out uh, and actually do sort of, you know, build a sort of a basket of goods and, and track it over time going forward. Yeah, because um, that because that sounds like something that like of of any way that caused inflation via UBI, having a localized currency and increasing in supply seems like the one way with to, no that, taxes that would, yeah, because with this, no is, taxes. this is with this pay for by oil, oil revenue. But who knows? I mean um you know Johannes Haushofer again um as I mentioned he he works He's worked on uh, with Paul Niehaus and others on, on give, give Directly Kenya. And they did what I think is the only general equilibrium, like empirical general equilibrium analysis of like a cash transfer program by, you know, they basically just helicopter dropped enormous amounts of money into rural Kenya um, and followed it and got zero inflation. Um, it's rural Kenya. So... <laughs> So they may be operating in, in you know, a depressed uh, sort of economic state in which you wouldn't expect to see inflation anyway. But um, but it is uh, it's sort of an interesting paper. Um, and, you know, they did. I remember he presented and we, we all were like, what about this? What about that? What about that? And they had really, you know, crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. So it's an interesting, um, definitely interesting analysis. Yeah. You'll, you'll have to send me that because I'm I'm getting into uh, working with a UBI organization um, and uh, I'm a macro guy. So I want to, I want to take a look at uh, the, uh, def- the defense of the macroeconomic side of UBI. And so like one of the things about like I, my favorite thing to debate when I was a Yang campaigner was obviously the, uh, the uh, no inflation thing. Um, so, so that would be interesting to take a look at. Um, anyway, uh, you have anything more on the on the topic? On that, I mean, I guess it's just it's very exciting time for for this for unconditional cash transfers, right? I think it's just um, yeah. Do you think the ARP is laying a groundwork for basic income policy? Because I'm writing an op-ed defending that proposition and saying, well, it's a good, it's a decent enough first step towards basic income the way it was designed. So you know, what in terms of the child, the 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 child pseudo, benefits, the, the, pseudo the, child the, the yeah. uh, near, you know, the more universality, the uh, focus on, the, the, you know, we increase cash benefits. We didn't increase, you know, we didn't focus on increasing staff. If we focus on giving out more cash, things like that. So I think that's great. Um, I'm not sure, uh, you know. So on the one hand. You know, you had those folks saying, you know, in the Wall Street Journal saying, this is a stealth UBI. It's only a matter of time before they give people like adults this money. But, the question is, are, are, are us UBI people like that good at ninjaing? Yeah, like- I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am not a shinobi. Um, so I, I think, um, uh, I mean, I lived in Japan for a while, but I'm, but I'm definitely not a ninja. Um, so the, the um, 
Yeah. I mean, there are child allowances all around the world and they didn't all lead to UBI. Um, on the other hand, you know, maybe there's something special about the American context. I don't know. I also wonder, you know, if this sort of, I wouldn't know if I would call it zeal, maybe, maybe some zeal, but acceptance of, um, you know, unconditional cash relief, near universal cash relief, um, sort of persists after the pandemic. Um, you know, there's there's the there's an idea of deservingness in the safety net. Um, you know, often it's it's the conditionality of it, it's reciprocity, right? Which is like you have to do something in order to to get it. Um, and it's often you know, so it's work conditioning or, or whatever. I think there's a lot of even even if that were philosophically a good idea, I think there's you know just in terms of implementation, it's it's a really bad idea. Um, but there's also just this sense of like locus of control. Um, you know, to what extent are the circumstances under your control slash your fault versus outside of your control? And you know, the last year was like world historic plague has has hit the. the so if you say everybody's in need, everybody's in trouble, this isn't anybody's fault. I think most people are willing to go along with that. But you know, now you're you get back to normal times, and suddenly these sort of narratives pop back in about well, it's it's his fault because he was, you know, profligate or he was lazy, you know, and I think, you know, trying to make people understand that there are just you know idiosyncratic shocks to to households at all times that you don't see, um, they just don't all line up neatly except for during you know recessions or or disasters or whatever but that doesn't mean that people don't have these sort of events that are that <clears throat> hit them and that um you know barring a cushion can sort of lead them into a spiral where you get into a trap with debt and you get your car repossessed which makes you lose your job and then it just you just collapse right so i'd love to see this I guess create a new understanding of that and and a desire for a prophylactic against that to to prevent those things. But um, you know, I mean, it's my adult life has been you know the post the the welfare reform to post welfare reform world, and um, I, this is kind of a shocking and abrupt shift, um, you know, from from what I've experienced. Um, I think what uh, our good our good mystery friend James Medlock was basically pointed out, and, and is true that 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 this is basically undoing TANF in a lot of ways. The child that the child allowance should become permanent. Um, that's true. I just hope we have more momentum to do more. Um, uh, well, you know, the, the, there's, there might be a uh, carbon tax and dividend on the way, which would be very exciting because that's. That's that's both anti climate change and uh, the the straightest to UBI that you can think of. I think it's good too because it's. I think the messaging around that is easy. Yeah. Is is easier than well, it's, it's the easiest yeah. way to say to yourself or to say to people like, yeah, carbon tax is here and you've been told to not like it because it apparently has something to do with gas prices, but you're getting money and everybody doesn't yeah. everybody likes and money. You say, and you say, you call it a a, a dividend. 
Um, and there is definitely research around the freedom dividend is such a great branding name. Yeah, no, I mean, and there's, um, there's a great scholar, um, named Catherine Thomas, uh, at Stanford, uh, who worked with the basic income lab there. And I think her dissertation work is on these sorts of framing effects around guaranteed income. Um, you know, if you call it a dividend, if you put the word freedom in it, like, what does that actually do to people's perceptions of it? Um, and I think also, um, in particular, how does it affect folks on on the right? Because um, it is true that there's a sort of there is a subset of the left that's sort of like in kind, benefits focused sort of paternalism. But when you actually poll sort of unconditional cash transfers, you get a lot more buy in on the left than you do on the right. Um, it's it's um, it's mostly a left wing thing. There are right-wing supporters of it, um, but then there's those who are just like deathly, deathly opposed to it. Um, but what we see in some research, and and the, there's some research we're going to be com- releasing pretty soon about this, actually, so like, spoiler, um, <clears throat> that um, there's sort of a, a group of younger conservatives, um, especially those who have children who are, are not adamantly opposed to, to UBI. They're actually um, somewhat supportive to ambivalent about it. And, and, uh, we, I know and it's anecdotal, but this, yeah. um, whenever I talk to young conservatives at like political events about like this is back during primary season, I asked them, okay, what are the two most Democrat, two Democrats you're running right now you're most likely to vote for? If they, you know who, who you choose in support, and they always said Yang and Buttigieg were the two guys they always Yang said. Yang and Buttigieg, that's interesting. Uh, I think because Mayor Pete has a, a, a really you know a framing that does not seem radical at all. A lot of his aesthetics, and Yang had yeah. uh, had a framing that was not like I'm left wing, I'm a Democrat. He's more like. I'm just running as a Democrat. I'm going to do Yang things and Yang things sound cool. Who doesn't like Yang, Yang things? things. <laughs> yes, it's like I'm running as a Democrat because the others, the Republicans are crazy, like literally crazy. And, and so therefore anybody who does policy at, of any sort basically yeah, is not- <laughs> like, like I have a, like uh, my, my, my saying is always, I would have probably been a Republican up until 1992, but like a liberal, like, like Massachusetts Republican were like, yeah, yeah. hi, I'm here to, um, I'm here to talk about like mixed market healthcare. Uh, also, I think that we should fight communism and I like gay people. Um, and then like in 1992, I let what allows cause Phil Clinton's like kind of cool. I like Phil Clinton. Um, not, not as welfare reform, but I think his other stuff is good. I will disclaim that I think it, that had bad welfare reform. Um, but like, is you know there's this older this sort of generation of like conservatives which I encounter especially the smarter conservatives, um, um, and a lot of them are like sort of like I just really wish that we could have you know policy <laughs> discussions the Republican Party, uh, but we can't. No, no, I will. Uh, yeah, I mean not. Yeah, there are a lot of amazing. Um, conservative intellectuals and policy wonks uh, that you can talk with on Twitter and that you can read their white papers. It's just, you know, do they have any sway over the Republican Party? Yeah, because the Republican Party stopped having its policy wing when Donald Trump was nominated. Like, like, you know, like, like, like even, you know, like you can say, well, you know, however dubious you could think that their policy was before then. They had an effort to like produce some 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 sound stuff, and like now you have like the NatCon squad doing whatever whatever they think they're doing. Well, I mean that that being said, 
um, I mean, this is not the JFI position. This is my position, but my position is that the, the, the Romney child allowance is far superior in terms of its structure and implementation to, um, to what actually ended up being produced. Um, uh, you know, am I going to complain? No, that's about something that, that can cut poverty by 50%. No, I'm not going to complain. But if you look at, you know, taking seriously things like how do you actually implement this in a sustainable and, and sort of low burden way, that plan had a real, a lot of really great ideas in it. Um, I mean, you could quibble about some of the financing stuff, but, um, but, but I thought it was, it was just really good plan and surprising too, right? Like, wow, look, who's, who's the winner on policy. It, it's, yeah. Mitt Romney, like I think Mitt Romney was kind of unique about it. I think he's more good faith than a lot of other people. Sure. Like, like you could argue that he's, he's wrong about things, but I do think that he 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 makes an effort. Like the whole binders full of women thing that people got angry at him about. Like, it's kind of like of all the things to get pissed about him. Like the whole like <laughs> I made a list of women to try and hire because I want to improve my diversity is like a very weird thing that ended up being an issue. Um, uh, politics. Yeah. Oh, but <laughs> old school, we're, we're old school politics, and we used to get angry about like the Jesus people in the in the dinosaur theme park instead of like <laughs> fascists in the Capitol. <laughs> the Jesus people in the dinosaur <laughs> theme park. <laughs> that, that was that. No, is it no? It's the Noah's Ark theme park in like oh, yeah, in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. That one, and, yeah. and that was like an issue somehow. Yeah, like, yeah, I, like yo, look at those oh, stupid oh, evangelicals. They oh, had- we we are we are straying way outside of, of the zone where I should be commenting. So I'm going to stop commenting now. <laughs> yeah, I, no, 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 no. I I'm fine with Christianity, but the uh, there was like uh, at some point like. Middle early two thousands or whatever, because early two thousands was a cursed time. Um, <laughs> there, there was a political debate over this like Noah's Ark themed park somewhere in like Tennessee. I want to say. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. I think it's still around too. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just like because like you know back then like the like the uh, the fringe of conservatism was like the creationists and not the like ah uh, hi I'm here to do fascism people. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like the fringe of the left was like I'm John Kerry. And then I'm I'm here to you know do John Kerry thing like the, the fringe of the left back then weren't economically left they just really didn't like George Bush at all. That, that those are like the far left people or like the like how how left are you? Oh, I hate George Bush more than you. <laughs> this this was I mean this is where I was and this is me in college and and and, and grad school. Yeah, it's like Kirsten Cinema who used to be like a like a radical like left wing activist. She just didn't like George Bush. Not she's not particularly left wing as we've seen the way she votes. Uh, whatever you think of the way she's voting, but you know she didn't like George Bush certainly uh, and didn't like the Iraq War. So that's how she became quote unquote left wing for that time period. This is this is true. So yeah. Um, we have um, we do have some UBI or UBI like advocates um, in in Congress now, um, folks like like uh, Rashida Tlaib and and, and so and, and uh, Ilan Omar. Um, so it's it's great to see people actually talking about this um, in in uh, you know at the federal level. Um, but you know the squad is still a small group of people, uh, and I'd like to see it spread um because i don't i i mean you can be a left winger and support a ubi um yeah but i don't think there's anything particularly left wing about yeah no, certainly not you know about Im- implementing you know the most prominent a, advocate of the 20th century who was for 
uh, UBI or basic income was Milton Friedman. Sure, Milton Friedman. Um, technically Charles Murray now, but like we don't talk about him anymore. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think, uh, you know, a UBI that actually would immiserate people would, is not, I'm, I don't support yeah. that. Um, I, mean, I, I would get the UBI plan of his if it was like a little bit more money, but it's more just like, hi, take $13,000 and leave. Yes. Everybody. Um, yeah, no. So, I mean, reweaving the safety net, that's, that's not a good idea. Um, but I, but again, I think, you know, simply recognizing that by doing upfront means testing, by targeting, by work conditioning, that you are making, you're just putting a huge burden on people. Um, and you're causing people, even the people who are eligible, um, according to your targeting and means testing approach to drop out. Um, and that you're, you're basically shooting, shooting yourself in the foot, uh, by conditioning stuff on work. Um, and you, you know, so there's so much research on, you know, the, the value of early childhood interventions, for example, that the idea you know, even if you're just like, what is my return on investment as a taxpayer? Well, even from that very just narrow uh, calculus, you want to be giving unconditional cash to, to families that have, you know, young children, because it's going to lead to much less, you know, taxpayer cost on, um, on uh, you know, criminal justice, on healthcare, um, it's going to lead to a, a larger tax base because people are going to be more productive and and you know you know better educated. I mean, it's just like it's so you don't even need to get into the you know a lot. You don't even have to have my bleeding heart in order to yeah. to, to support this. Well, the thing to think about is like um you know like Chetty and others work into like the moving to opportunity program. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like the thing I always found kind of weird about that is like. Do we really think that neighborhood is like seriously the, the reason why kids from certain neighborhoods turn out better to just like the choice of location and surroundings? Because, you know, my thought would always be, would be is uh, um, what happens to the income of the family that moves there is it, if it goes up? Because the yeah. question is like what what happens if we try and replicate the conditions of those neighborhoods in every other neighborhood in America? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Better jobs, better schools. What if we just transferred those and moving the families? Yeah, I mean, well, these don't. I mean, you know, it it only works if it's on the margin, right? Like, you, like everybody literally can't pick up and 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 leave. Um, and and when it does work, I mean, there's a few things, right? I mean, some of the neighborhoods these people are leaving, moving from are you know, they might be dangerous. Um, and, and, and I don't just mean crime there. I mean, they, they might just be, you know, environmentally dangerous in terms of like, you know, lead paint on the, the walls and just unhe- like, you know, black mold and on the floors and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's unhealthy sort of area, but, you know, I mean, not surprisingly, a lot of the folks who, who left, you know, maintained their social networks in in the original neighborhoods where they came from, those are their friends, those are their family, those are the people that they know, and um, you know I think folks were hoping that um, the families would be able to integrate into the new neighborhoods um, <clears throat> and take advantage of that network integration. You know, I'm a sociologist, and we know that that most people find their job the jobs through social networks. Um, and in particular, um, from uh, you know, novel information that comes through bridging weak ties, 
And um, if you don't integrate yourself into those networks, um, the, you don't actually get anything from that. Um, but the idea would be, oh, now you have you know network connections, weak though they may be, to people in the middle class. This is sort of like non-lens social capital sort of theory. And that this sort of cross-cutting, bridging weak ties will allow you to get information about jobs um, that you wouldn't be able to get access to. Um, there could be peer effects on the children by being in, in a different neighborhood or different a network. And that's what you see with the moving to opportunity, right? When they did the sort of the reanalysis, the subgroup analysis that they validated with other data, um, that the benefits did accrue, but they really only accrued to, fam to children who moved very young. Um, if they had been teenagers and they can't went there, I mean, if you've ever moved as a kid if you're 12 or something like that to a new area you know it's, it's hard to suddenly integrate yourself um yeah i don't remember anything like below like six years old at this point yeah. and, I, and i'm still young which means that like at some point i'm, I'm gonna wake up and be like what happened before ninth grade what was what was going on I look, I'm, I am 41 and I still have memories before ninth grade. <laughs> they don't, they don't just vanish, yeah. but they do get phase. They do get fuzzier. That's certainly true. Yeah. You know, now, now, you know, I try to remember what happened, you know, in fifth grade, you know, what at one time I'm like, what is this? MV equals PY. God damn it. It got replaced <laughs> on a piece of macro. No, no. And what actually happened to me is I think I have really good and strong memories from the time that I'm in four through to about 15, then I have suppressed the entire memory of high school and then college starts. So somewhere like yeah. from fifth, fifth, that's for me in middle school. I do not like <laughs> middle school. It's a bad time. It's, um, a, bad, it's a bad time. Yeah. That's time for everybody. Really? I think <laughs> like, uh, okay. So, hmm. so we, so we wanted to uh, finish up around, you know, an hour. So I think we're reaching that runtime. Sure, you want now. to close. You have some closeout. Yeah. Uh, I have some closeout. My closeout question is: Using sure. a Dungeons and Dragons or heavy metal analogy, explain removing the safety net. Oh dear. Okay, that's. Um, well, I'm. I'm going to say. Um, so I'm. A, I'm a real big fan of Kill Switch Engage, and I think who isn't? That, Actually, who, uh, there's tons of people who aren't, but you know what? Let's pretend they don't exist. Okay, let's go back to um, Alive or Just Breathing. So we're in the, like the, the original Jesse uh, era, although the Howard era is also really good. Rose, Rose of Sharon is one of my most favorite songs. But, you know, Kill Switch Engage sort of deftly weaves together both clean vocals and the, just the hardcore, like, death metal vocals. And those serve different functions in, in the song, right? Um, they cannot replace each other and they each add value. And in the same way, income support programs and public insurance provision are two different aspects of the safety net. They cannot replace each other. They are bad substitutes for each other. But when you weave them together, you produce a better, stronger, more desirable safety net. So I see UBI as perhaps playing the death metal vocals part component of, of the safety net, while uh, social insurance provision is this is the clean vocals. Yeah. You, need, you, need, you really do need both, I think. And That's you can't have clean uh, verses and death metal choruses. You got to, you know, you got you got to have the, the clean through in the chorus and the death metal doing the. Doing That's the right. Sections. You got a guy going in the background, going like, "I'm more for those who never knew you." And it's like, 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 yeah, like it's awesome. Like, there's a tear in my eye, but I'm also thrashing. <laughs>
This and is then great. You get, you get to the get the diverse section, and you gotta you gotta lose it. You can't you, you can't lose yourself to really. You really it's hard harder to lose yourself to like a guy with a nice voice. You gotta you gotta hear the grime, right? So then yeah, he's just like this. This voice is so beautiful. Oh wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. So I, fun fact, and I will not do this on the podcast one day. But I mm-hmm. do know how to do death metal vocals. Um, you do? Like I, I, yeah. feel, I feel like I could do them, but I've never there, actually decided. Here's decide. a trick. Try and hum. Feel that pressure in your back of your throat. Open your mouth and press like forward. That will create the best death metal growls. And just practice that. Get your breath up. Get the tolerance in your throat up. Because you actually don't want to hurt. It won't hurt your throat. It just run. You just run out of breath. Is this, um, is, so it go like I'm doing like Mongolian throat singing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally <laughs> Mongolian throat singing, but like more exasperated. Okay. And then, uh, I, I, I sound no. a lot like Yoan Egg, uh, like Ramana Marf. Whenever oh, I'm nice. lucky, that's me. That's that is pretty awesome. Um, I, I do do karaoke, so at some point we should. <laughs> yeah. what, death metal karaoke is a thing. Apparently, in the United Kingdom, a friend Tom said that he did death metal karaoke once, and so now I, I've determined to find where he did it and just go there, and then it'll belt up the entirety of slowly re rot. I would do. If that were okay, I mean, I guess it's not technical. Well, no, I guess it's definitely. I would do the um, the Sepultura version of Procreation of the Wicked. I think is is probably just the perfect for that. I would. Procre- I actually, I know Annihilation of the Wicked. I don't know Procreation of the Wicked. So Procreation of the Wicked is one of the like the first death metal songs by Celtic Frost. Oh, I love Celtic. Yeah, I, I know Celtic Frost, but I know their like late their last album, which is like kind of. I, I like that album. I, it's not. It's not. It's not early Celtic Frost, uh, but it's. I think it's. It's kind of cool. So creepy. they had this. They had this weird thing where they went like they're like metal, and then they went death metal, and then they had like a two album or th- I think like interlude where they became a hair metal band, and they and it was terrible, and then they went back to being met- yeah. to metal. Yeah, I, I know. Um. Uh, What's 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 the album of the emperor in the title? I I know that album. I love uh, I like that album. It's one of the earlier albums. I Mm. think actually they they might have been still known as Hellhammer, but when they released that, nice Hellhammer. (laughs) Which by the way is is, that's that's you know there are so many um, uh, black metal bands where like the lead singer calls himself Hellhammer in the honor of Hellhammer. (laughs) That's pretty Um, cool. So just like multiple. We'll yeah. like that. So how many um, how many Twitter followers am I going to gain on net from from this podcast? Because uh, okay. I'm probably going to lose some, but I'm hoping to gain more. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I think yeah, you lose a couple whenever you say the word podcast, and then uh, I mean, I think you'll gain maybe from me at most twenty followers. I don't I, mean, I don't have that much more than you. I have like, at most I don't want to say triple. I have like a little bit more than half. Um, but like. I think that the overlap of our followers is pretty strong. It's very strong already. All right. Yeah. I'm ju- I am literally just a subsection of your followers. A subset. That's great. Actually, no, no, no. I think, I think you're a subsection of Matt Darling's followers, if anything. Oh, yes. Matt took me under his wing as yeah. as, as the um, – it's like the, the big, like, the big brother or big sister. I'm a subset of Jason's followers, um, Jason Harrison's followers. Yeah, you're a subset yeah. of Matt Darling's followers. We're all a subset of Noah Smith's followers. That's um, right. Eventually, we're all a subset of uh, the one, the only uh, Richard Failer's weird amount of followers, and he like, posts once or twice. And he goes, Richard, um, Richard Failer, like I always kind of remind myself that like he's technically econ Twitter. He technically sees some of the stuff which pops up. He is, yeah, that's right. 
I mean, I feel like I I'm on econ Twitter now. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, despite your, despite your, I, I gotta explain to me uh, your deal with the sociology PhD. Wait, how long did you say it took you? Oh, um, so, <laughs> um, so did I you actually, say thirty years. I was I was joking. I am not. Oh come on. Um, I didn't start grad school at, at ten. That would be amazing. Um, <laughs> no, so I was. Um, Right after undergrad, I did. I started an econ PhD program, and I stuck around for two years, and then decided that I just didn't want to be an economist. Um, But I mean, that that that's that's a long story. But the short of it, I think, is that things like institutional analysis and social network analysis and the existence of involuntary unemployment, like all of those sorts of things were like really, really heterodox at the time. And I just didn't feel like sticking around and, and fighting it out. Um, I think ch- things have obviously changed a lot in the last 20 Wait, you years. Got behavioral but- econ and you got neo-institutionalism and then you got like, on- honestly, the best thing that happened to institutionalism has been Darren Asimoglu because he's yeah. made the word less cursed. He's yeah, like, I, this This word is important. We should learn this word. And everybody's like, what, what other uses of the word does this have? And I think I think just, you know, labor economics has continued to get hard Kruger, obviously progressively. Big, big. Yeah, progressively more awesome. So so I moved over to economic sociology. Um, I worked under Mark, Mark Granovetter. He's social network theorist and economic sociologist. Read all his papers. They're amazing. Um, and um, and that part, the Ph.D. part after that two years uh was another six years uh but that's pretty common right yeah so yeah my, my one goal is like uh i want to skip a pre-doc i want to get i want to get my phd done before i'm 30 and then i'll be set <laughs> i was i was on a, a cruise at 30 uh for my 30th birthday um and i uh recalling the david foster wallace piece where he like stares at the like the black void of the ocean at nighttime and i still hadn't finished my phd and i was just going like oh god well, well my you god. know i feel like i feel like i have the advantage of, of identifying what i want to do at the age of 16 um which is it you know um i can't wait to like get the calls be like okay i have an idea of when i write when i write my phd on let me start cleaning data now because god knows it takes years <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of like, okay, I have an idea, but I really need to get some data, and that could that could take a long time. Yeah, I know somebody who's studying like data on like whaling. He's studying like whaling, but like to find the data on whaling was like, it's like he had to like go like somewhere in New Bedford, be like, "Yo, got any whaling records?" And they're like, "No, we don't." (laughs) (laughs) Oh no 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 no! Yeah, is this the this is um uh is this William Thorne at 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 a. at uh, at uh, and well, he's at NYU, I think, right? The PhD student. Um, I think he's foreign, a follower. I think. For, I think we. I know foreign. He's at um, UMass Amherst, I think. Oh God, uh, this is it, not. Yeah. This is not him. This is not someone's PhD. I know somebody who was like a a like a, like they were like interested in all sorts of American history and what their project was on whaling, and they had to like go to New Bedford to like figure out stuff about the whaling industry because they just could not find the records like anywhere else and they had to like travel a location that sounds that sounds painful but also kind of interesting because it's a nice town actually you, it, and, and with no, and willing is also just fascinating yeah. so imagine being like this is this is my <laughs> lamp there was a piece of whale fat in here which yes. we got out of the ocean hold, hold on that- hold, hold on a second i am now spraying perfume on myself which is this also is- made basically with whale vomit right which is is it and, a and, placenta 
Is it? It's called ambergris. Yeah, I think, I thought, it was I think it's, I thought it was like essentially like something that they vomit out of their mouths. But but you can you could look that up. Um, back when I was back when I was sixteen, like I couldn't do that. I would have to go to like a, a library and like find a book about whale vomit. So I, I love that we live in the future now. Yeah. <laughs> now we can make artificial whale vomit. We just got a big whale head and it vomits every once in a while. <laughs> In a lab, in a lab, artificial ambergris. Awesome. All right. So on that note, um, it is well past my bedtime. So we're gonna... <laughs> no, no. Okay. You know what? We're going to end with that. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, man. I gotta, you got to go to bed at a 10 when you have kids. It's, it's a thing. Uh, no, no. I mean, listen, as you can, as I can, yeah, you can tell you have kids because in a way that dad joke would have flown about, you know, that power. <laughs> Some days I feel the dad jokes coming on. I'm like, you know what? Definitely the children are in the future because there's no way, no, no other way this happens. I don't, no. I don't know how to, I, I lost the ability to tell non jokes upon yeah. uh, non dad jokes upon becoming a dad. So it's, it's either that or it's either that or crying at the end of a field of dreams. Like I never cry, <laughs> but that one movie just gets like, I don't even like baseball and I played catch with my dad plenty and I can still play catch with my dad. Like he's there. I can ask him to play catch, but that one like that one scene at the end where it's like, <laughs> where like you see the cars and the guys like, what a catch. Oh, oh God, they already, socks. They, already, so they already drew you in. They got yeah, you. I, just, I don't even like baseball. It's just so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with movie. you. I'm with you on yeah. that. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I actually have to go too because my cat needs my attention and it has been making noise this entire time. Oh, it's wow. Somewhere in my room. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you definitely don't want to leave a needy cat without a pet. <laughs>